Well, I do want to say Happy New Year to you. We welcome 2024. It's going to be a great year. I know it's going to be a great year because of who God is. God is faithful in who He is. Even when we are not faithful, He is faithful, so we count on that. Our theme is the Bible. It's on what we believe, and we're going to be on the, looking at the Bible for the next couple of weeks. Well, it's one of my favorite topics. Uh, it's one of my favorite topics because nothing will change your life more than the Bible. Nothing. You put yourself in the Bible every day, weekly, it will radically alter your life. If you want to make some changes in your life, look at the Bible. It will help you to grow and mature in your faith. And as the Bible is a revelation, it contains a lot of different genres, a lot of different things. <clears throat> I thought that I would begin kind of in a fun way today and give you some quotes from people, children, about the Bible. And these are quotes from children about the Bible and what they believe about the Bible and what they understand about the Bible. Remember, they are children, all right? So they may be a little different. They may not be. Who knows? Out of the mouth of babes, Adam and Eve had a son, Cain, who hated his brother as long as he was able. Shadrach, Meshach, and a billy goat were thrown into a fire. Joshua led the Hebrews in the battle of Jeritol. Noah's wife was called Joan of Arc. David fought with the Ficklesteins, a race of people who lived in Bible times. David had a son named Solomon who had 300 wives and 500 porcupines. My teacher, my teacher says he was wise, but that doesn't sound very wise to me. There's a lot of truth in that statement. The people who followed the Lord were called the 12 decibels. Okay, so this is good. You got to listen close. A Christian should have only one wife. That is called monotony. Not to be outdone. St. Paul cavorted to Christianity. He preached holy acrimony, which is another name for marriage. The epistles were the wives of the apostles, and Jesus was a great man who healed many leopards. Let me ask you, what do you believe about the Bible? Psalm 19, verse 7 says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing your soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, and it will refresh your soul. There's any reason why we shouldn't be in the Bible every day if it refreshes our soul. This can speak to us in a way that nothing else can. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says this, Every word of God is flawless. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word of God is flawless. Is there any why reason why we shouldn't read, study, meditate, and depend upon the reliable word of God as to the way that he has revealed himself? This morning we have the great privilege of opening this book. I remind you that some people uh, went to China many, many years ago with the express purpose of of bringing Bibles to, to Chinese people. They smuggled Bibles, and people out do this all the time because they don't have the Word of God. And we have the incredible privilege of being open, open freely the Word of God and to read and to study and meditate on it. And not just put it on a shelf, but to open it and to allow this flawless Word of God to change our lives. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1. And as we walk through this idea of the Bible, um, we're kind of in a, a real short series, and I've called to the last word. Now, this is the last word that we have. This is God's revelation to us. God reveals himself to us in Scripture. God reveals himself uh, through the person of Jesus Christ. God reveals himself through the, the Holy Spirit of God. And what I want to do is I just want to look at God's word again and the beauty and the wonder of God's word and, and to, to remind you how reliable the word of God is to us. 
So 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning of verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Apostle Peter, if you would. It says this, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. Verse 19. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. Completely reliable. No matter what you were going through in your life, no matter how difficult it is, and maybe you've even strayed, God's word is absolutely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by a prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, last week we looked at Psalm 119, and it talked about open our eyes that we would see wonderful things from your law. And Father, I pray that collectively as you gather together on this first Sunday, Father, we would see Jesus. We would see Jesus as he is revealed to us in Scripture. And Father, I pray that the word of God would so touch our hearts and minds and souls that no matter what we are going through, no matter what we are experiencing, God, we would be encouraged that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Father, none of us has any idea of what 2024 holds for us. Father, the only thing that we can do is approach you with open hands, open hearts, and ask that you would guide and direct us. And in the midst of life, Father, you would speak to us through your Son and through the Word of God. Father, thank you for your Word. I ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. So what we know, this, this is Second Peter. He wrote First Peter and he wrote Second Peter. And we know that uh, Peter was called to be a follower of Jesus. He spent three and a half years with Jesus uh, in his public ministry. And no doubt, probably what Peter is doing is he's writing to a people who've been scattered because of their faith. Maybe there's persecution going on. Nero is on the throne. And he's a bad dude, and he would uh, do some bad things to, to Christians at some particular point in time. And what he wants to do is this. He knows that he's going to die. He says, listen, the time of my departure drawing near, I know that I'm going to die. And what I want people to do, if you go back and look at the context, what I want people to do is in verse 4, I, I want people to be able to, to live righteous and holy lives. I want them to walk in obedience to God, to be holy as God is holy. And the second thing that he wants them to do is he wants them to, he wants them to stand firm in their faith. He is going to leave. The foundation, the apostles, they're going to all die. They're going to pass away. And if, if these people pass away, how are they going to live? What are they going to do? How are they going to know about their faith? What are they supposed to do? And what, what Peter's doing, he's reminding them and is reminding us of the wonder and the beauty of God's word, that God's word is absolutely reliable as given to them in the Old Testament and as they were writing it. And so what I want to do is this. I just want to look at God's word. Three things from God's word from this text. Number one, God's words are reliable. Number two, God's word, it will illuminate your soul. And the last thing I want to see is that God's word is spirit given. 
So that's where we're going this morning. Number one, God's word is reliable. Now notice Peter's argument here in verse 16. What's he doing? He's arguing from personal experience. He's going back to an experience that he had on the mountain, this wonderful experience of the transfiguration. Look at verse 16. He says this, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, his faith is not rooted in myths and fables and stories. He said, listen, God, Jesus had called me to follow him, and he called 12 of us to follow him, and that's what we did. We reoriented our life, and for three and a half plus years, we followed him. We saw his wonder. We saw his beauty. We saw all of his power. We saw his glory manifest in an entirely different way to us. And what he was saying is, listen, the Greeks and the Romans, they had this idea of fables. They had this idea of myths. They had this idea of human speculations. If you go back and look at Greek history, Roman history, they had their gods, they had their goddesses, they had their heroes, they had their villains. But all of that was rooted in things that were not necessarily true. There's all kinds of myths that they used to pass on about creation and about the origin of life and how to live. And what is Peter doing? In costume, he says, I, I, I'm writing from personal experience. There's an interesting phrase in verse 16. It says this, cleverly invented stories. It has this idea that your faith, our faith, is actually based upon myths and fables or stories. In other words, it's not rooted, our faith is not necessarily rooted in historical events, facts about who Jesus is and about what he has come to do. So if people believe that way, they would believe things like this about maybe the Bible, about the Old Testament. They would say, listen, I believe in the Bible, but I believe in the deeper truths of the Bible. Things like this, that we should be kind to one another, that we should love one another, we should tolerate one another, that we should do all of those things together. We should maybe speak the truth to one another. But that doesn't mean that my faith is actually rooted in the historical events of Scripture. So what they would do is they might look at an event the plagues in the book of Exodus or the crossing of the Red Sea. And they may say this, well, you know what? That's not necessarily true, but we believe that God can come and set his people free. You know, they have this element of truth, but it's not necessarily rooted in a historical event of the Exodus or God bringing and setting his people free. Same thing in the New Testament, the person of Jesus. They may say this, well, you know what? I don't necessarily believe in all the supernatural stuff. I don't know that Jesus actually walked on water, but I do believe that because of who Jesus is and what he can do, he can help us in our time of need. And they might look at the Christmas story and say, Jesus can do all that he wants. All things are possible to him who believes. Listen, if Jesus can do all that he wants, and if our faith is rooted in the fact that that he can do everything that's impossible, why can't we believe him to do the supernatural? Why do we have to remove the supernatural apart? Why do we have to do that? Just because we don't like it and we can't understand and we can't embrace it? And what's Peter doing here? Peter's saying, listen, I was with Jesus. This is a, a, a clear indication that he's an eyewitness testimony of something that actually happened in his life. That phrase, cleverly invented stories, is the exact opposite of the truth. It has this idea that, that our faith is grounded in, in myths or in fables or stories, if you will. Well, the Bible says this. If we can't trust Jesus for his historical life, if we can't trust him for the things that he did and the fact that he went to the cross, offered himself as a sacrifice for sin, went into the grave and came back to life, if we cannot trust him for that, then our faith, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, means absolutely nothing. 
Our faith is absolutely rooted in sound doctrine. Our faith is absolutely rooted in the unique person of Jesus and who he is. Paul said this to his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Notice what he says. And it has relevance today. This is written 2,000 years ago. What's the relevance today? Notice what he says. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, truth. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. See what they do? They just want to be around people that tell them what they want to hear. And they don't want to hang on to or embrace sound doctrine about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and who he is. So to Peter and Paul and to Jesus and to all of the writers of the New Testament, truth absolutely mattered because truth is what will change your life. And the truth, according to Peter, was rooted in the historical person of Jesus. You see what Peter does? He takes them back to an event. The event is called the Transfiguration. It's in a couple of the Gospels. And if you go back and look at it, we understand that, that Jesus did something absolutely beautiful. He was transfigured, if you will, before these people. And Peter personally witnessed the power and the majesty of Jesus being transformed right in front of his very eyes. And what Peter was saying is, listen, my faith, our faith, is not in men's fables or stories or ideas. And to make his point, he takes them back to, I want to tell you what happened in my life on the time that Jesus took us on the mount. He took Peter, James, and John, and I, and he took us to the mountain, and he wanted us to be with them. And as we were up there, all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah show up. The law and the prophets, they show up. And all of a sudden, we're looking at Jesus, and he's transformed in front of us. His face becomes radiant, and his clothes become white. And all of a sudden, something beautiful. We're seeing this person by the name of Jesus, and we're seeing him in his glory. And all of a sudden, God speaks. And in verse 17, he references that transfiguration and what he heard on the mountain. Notice what he heard in verse 17. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And if you go back and look at the accounts, there's one other phrase that's added there. And it's this. Listen to him. To who? Listen to Jesus. Why listen to Jesus? Because when you look at this verse and you look at all that was happening in the lives of the disciples and the apostles, when you look at what's going on, they were beginning to understand this unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son. That there was this unique, wonderful, beautiful relationship where Jesus came to essentially do the will of his heavenly Father, to walk in obedience and to display to everyone around, this is what God looks like. And I've come to tell you about God and how he wants us to live, if you will. If you go back and look at all of the Gospels, there's such an intimate relationship between God the Father and God the Son and what Jesus was ultimately doing in revealing God the Father to us. In John chapter 12, verse 49, listen to what Jesus says about this unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son. He says this, For I do not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. You want to know about God? You want to know about your Heavenly Father? Look to the life of Jesus. Look to who He is and what He's done for us. Are you familiar with Hebrews chapter 1? Hebrews chapter, let me just read Hebrews chapter 1. Three verses. You want to know who Jesus is? Let me show. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 
One says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. If you want to know who God is, look to the unique person of Jesus, because He has come, Jesus has come, to reveal to us God the Father. And as Peter looks back on that transfiguration, he realizes that God is making a theological statement about His Son, that He loves Him. And he knows what's going on. And he's well pleased with him. And again, if you go back and examine the transfiguration and then all that was transpired, you have Moses and you have Elijah. And you remember what the conversation was about? It was about Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. In other words, what are they talking about? They're talking about his death. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets are pointing us to the unique person of Jesus and what he was going to accomplish on the cross. That God the Father had sent God the Son to come to this world to live and do all of these wonderful miracles to teach and do all of these beautiful things. But he also came to die on the cross so that you and I might be reconciled to a holy God through his Son. And what Peter was reminding us and all of the fathers at that particular time, that he was an eyewitness to that prophecy, not only of Moses and Elijah, but God's voice in declaring who Jesus was to be. That's the truth that you and I have right here. Remember what John says about Jesus? He was what, full of grace and truth? John chapter 1, verse 14. There's a guy by the name of Oliver Wendell Holmes, and he says this about truth. I don't necessarily believe everything that he said, but notice what he said. Truth is tough. It will not break like a bubble at a touch. Nay, you may kick it about all day like a football and it will be round and full at evenings. Myths and fables and stories, they're all going to crumble, but not the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. And that is absolutely true about the unique person of Jesus. And what Peter is simply doing, he's saying, listen, I was an eyewitness to the wonder and the beauty of who Jesus is. I saw him not only in his power, but I saw him in his glory. Psalm 19 verse 7 says this, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. Do you believe that about God's word? That God's word is absolutely reliable in whatever you may going through and experiencing life and what may happen to you in 2024. Peter just simply says, listen, the word of God is absolutely reliable. But notice what else he says here. Not only is it reliable, but it has an authority about it, if you will. The Bible is a beautiful message that we have from a God who loves us and who cares for us and actually wants to have a relationship with us. So we we have this wonderful, beautiful revelation, not only in the Word of God, but through the person of Jesus so that we can be reconciled to Him and we know how to live our lives. But but when I come to the Bible and I open it, there's not this, this, oh, this is written by by God. And and I can't look at the back and go, oh, wait a minute, There's there's a... there's a biography of God in the back here, the things he likes to do. and There's, there's nothing like that in there. Well, well, why is that? Because this is God's word. This is God's word given to us. And he loves us and he cares about us and he wants us to know absolutely all about him. 
And when we come to know and understand that this, that this holy Bible was given to us by God himself. And what Peter is reminding us that this is absolutely a book that we can trust for the very essence of our lives. And that's what Peter's saying. Listen, I'm getting ready to die. I'm getting ready to move on. I want you to be able to live holy lives, to be holy as I am holy. And to be able to do that, you need to have something in your life. You need to have an anchor in your soul. And the word of God is an anchor in our soul. And what we have here as a beautiful declaration of God's intellectual property, if you will. Notice what he says in verse 19. Three times, verse 19, 20, and 21, we have God revealing himself and what this book is all about. Verse 19 says this, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. We have the Old Testament. The Old Testament is absolutely completely reliable. Look at verse 20. No prophecy of Scripture never came about by a prophet or a writer's own interpretation, which tells us something about the nature of God's intellectual property, if you will. Now look at verse 21. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. What Peter does here is he uses the word prophecy in a variety of ways to remind us that prophecy is rooted, if you will, in the Old Testament. But what he does here in verse 20 is this. He's using a different word. He's using the word graphe in the Greek language. It means this. It's words that's written down. They would know and understand from their, from their Jewish context that not only was the written word important, but they had the oral traditions that were important to them, for many of them. But what Peter is reminding them is, listen, I want to remind you that this is written word, that this is the written word of God that can communicate into your life and absolutely transform your life. Most of us are familiar with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's word is given to us to transform our life so that we can know exactly what he would want from us and how we can live our life to be his good servant, if you will. I don't think that King David sat down one day in a field and go, I think I'm going to write a letter. I'm going to write something down so that the generations after me, the children after me would, would know about God. I don't think he sat down and did that. Uh, God is my... God, God is my giant killer, or, or, or God is my guide. Or he, he sat down and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he said this, the Lord is what my, my, my shepherd. And the Holy Spirit of God guided him and directed him to write those words down. What we have in us is we have a, a text that we can trust because it's given to us through eyewitnesses like Peter and Paul and the apostles and the disciples. So, in our adult class, as we ended the year in 2023, we went through a series called The Reason for God. And uh, The Reason for God was actually a book that was written by Tim Keller um, over 10 years ago. And in the book, what he does is he offers um, reasons for why our faith is reasonable. And what he did in this video series was this. Um, he actually gathered together a group of non-Christians, people who did not believe, and he began to question them about certain things of the Bible uh, and to be in to invite them to share their objections to the scriptures and to the Bible. And the first session dealt with this question, this statement. Isn't the Bible a myth? 
That's what we're seeing here. Isn't the Bible simply a myth? One person said this, the Bible is a wonderful text. It's complex. A lot of things going on there. Some people believe it to be truth. I myself do not. And we hear that all the time. We hear people talk about, well, the Bible's a myth and we can't be trusted. I think that the passage that we're looking at from Peter is absolutely relevant to that statement. And this is what I mean. We know that Peter, who's an eyewitness, we know that Peter probably died around AD 64. We probably know that. Don't know the exact year, but within a year or two of AD 64. And most likely because of a persecution of Nero. And we know that Jesus was crucified on the cross about A.D. 33. So you're looking at 30, 35 years between the historical person of Jesus Christ and to the time that, that Peter is writing First and Second Peter. And the point that the, uh, Tim Keller makes in The Reason for God is, is this, that that is too short of a time frame, if you will. That's only 30 years. And when you look at ancient writings and you look at historical events, that is an absolutely short period of time between the time that Jesus lived and the time that this is writing. It's unheard of. 30 years is that. And so what we have here is we have this wonderful document, if you will, the Word of God in the New Testament given to us that point to us about the historical reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. By the way, Luke says, what I did was this. I carefully investigated everything. I talked to eyewitnesses. I talked to other people. I got the truth of God. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And I understood about the reality of who Jesus is and what he had done. And so what we know and understand is this, that as Peter looks back and reflects on this transfiguration, this eyewitness example, if you will, of an interaction with Jesus, that he was a part of something wonderful and something beautiful about the opportunity for him to communicate to the next generation of people of who Jesus was and what he had absolutely done, not only in his life, but he would do in other people's lives. By the way, there's one other point I want to make here. So most people believe that the Gospel of Mark, most people believe that the Gospel of Mark was somehow written, not dictated by Peter, but somehow Peter maybe passed along all of the stories and all of the truth. So, so maybe Mark is writing, if you will, from Peter's perspective. And at the end of the Gospel of Mark, there's an interesting verse, and I'm just going to give it to you. We're going to put it on the screen. Notice what Mark writes. It's interesting. And it goes to eyewitness account. And it goes to credibility. Notice what he says. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. It seems to me what the Gospel writer Mark is doing is this. He is writing this letter to people that he thought knew of these two people. He's writing as if they know exactly who they are and what's going on. And my point is this. If you were going to write a document about the unique person of Jesus, and you were going to make it a fable or a myth or something else, why would you put in there names that people could go to and talk to and find out absolutely whether this was true or not? Why would you do that? What, what Peter is simply doing is this. He, in this text, is reflecting on the eyewitness count of his life with Jesus and a very, very odd and different account, if you will. Think of it this way. If you go back and, and look at the transfiguration, he went up to the mount with Peter, James, and John, right? Remember that? 
he was transfigured. And when he came down, you remember what he told them? Don't tell anybody. What do you mean don't tell anyone? Don't tell anyone until after the resurrection. So you have basically three people who know Peter, James, and John. Three people who know exactly what's going on. And then Jesus tells him not to tell anyone until after the resurrection. If that was a fable, if that was a myth, why in the world would you put that in there? There's only a few people that would even know about that. He put that in there because Peter's writing from eyewitness accounts of his time with Jesus. And the people knew and embraced and knew about his relationship with them. They fully trusted he had been and walked with Jesus. There's no way that they would have put that in there unless there was something going on. This is God's word. And it's absolutely reliable to our lives. It's reliable because it has eyewitness testimony. It's reliable because it bears the authority of God himself. Second thing I want to point out in the five minutes I have left is this. Look at verse 19. This is, this is an absolutely beautiful verse. We also, we have the word of God. We, I mean, sorry, we have the eyewitness testimonies of Peter. We have the eyewitness testimonies. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in, in your heart. This is a, a, a beautiful statement about what God's word does. So <clears throat> let me try and illustrate this. So, last month, um, Beth and... Uh, two people got married. Thank you very much. And I had the privilege of, of doing their wedding ceremony, their service. And the day before the, the, day before the wedding... Um, they talked about uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy and, and just about um, that was uh, a part of their life that they knew a lot about. And as I was sitting there at the uh, rehearsal dinner, I began to Google um, Lord of the Rings and um, quotes about relationships and quotes about um, how to interact with each other in life. And I was just curious. And as I Googled that, I was shocked about the beauty of those stories, if you will, and how it actually reflected on life. And, and so what I did was I, I looked them up and I found a couple of quotes. A couple of them I used, but a couple of them I didn't use. And so here is some of the quotes from the story of the Lord of the Rings. I just want to share them with you, and then I'll make a point later. Here's one of the quotes from the books. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. By the way, I tell my wife that when I go out on my motorcycle. You know, <laughs> just because I wander doesn't mean I'm not. By the way, that's, that, you'll see that phrase, not all those who wander, all, you'll, you'll see that on a bumper sticker on the back of a Jeep. Isn't that interesting? Here's another quote. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Isn't that the book of Ephesians? Isn't that making the most of your time? Tolkien, all he's doing is reflecting on spiritual truth. And, and no wonder why these books and these movies and, and are, are so popular. Another one said, if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. Wasn't that truth? Isn't that truth? I like this one. Never laugh at live dragons. I have no idea what it means. I just like that. <laughs> Never laugh at live dragons. Two more. Faithless is he that says farewell when the road darkens. Faithless is he that says farewell when the road darkens. 
God doesn't do that. God doesn't say farewell. God is faithful when we are not faithful. That's a great quote, though. Are you going to stick with your friends? Last one of this, and I did, I did share this at their uh, fu- uh, funeral. Oh. I'll come back to that point in just a minute. It is the small, everyday deed of ordinary folks that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. And I shared that at the wedding ceremony. And this is why I did that. Because we all dress up for the wedding ceremony. And it's a great day. And it's a beautiful day. And the bride and groom, they want that to be an absolutely perfect day, don't they? But that's not reality. And I'm going to tell you that's not marriage. Marriage is hard. Marriage is difficult. Marriage is at times really, really dark. First week or two of my marriage with Laura, she lost her job. And, and like you, we've all gone through difficulties and challenges of life. And so what I wanted to do is they were getting ready to be married together. I wanted to share some light, if you will, some humor, if you will, some truth, if you will, from a book that they both loved and gravitated to. How much more so does the Bible speak to our life about relationships about things that absolutely matter in life. Friendships, relationships, money, hope, future, how to deal with circumstances. And what verse 19 says, it's like this. It's like there's this darkness. It could be the murkiness of our own soul. It could be darkness. When he uses the word dark in verse 19, he's talking about the murkiness of our own soul, the darkness of our own soul. We all know that. We all know what that looks like. And in the midst of that darkness comes what? This ray, this beam of light. And what is the beam of light? It's this. it's, It's the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done. It's the beauty of what he has done for us. In the midst of that, the light of the world shines. Jesus said, I am the light of the world and that I will shine in the midst of darkness. That's the beauty of the Bible and what it does and how it sheds light on the unique person of Jesus Christ. I love that verse. It just resonates well. As to a light shining in a dark place, that's what the word of God does. What's the dark place of your life? What's the murkiness of your soul? The Bible says it will shine light on that. Until the day dawns. Every day is a new day. The day dawns. We see the sun coming up, but it's a reminder of God's goodness and grace. And by the way, he says this, that the morning star rises in your heart. Who's the morning star? Jesus is the morning star. He's the bright and morning star. And light shines in the midst of darkness. And in the midst of that darkness, we have the unique person of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. And that's what the Bible does. The Bible says the light shines in the midst of darkness and we should embrace it. And what should we do? The text says this, it is reliable. Some of your verses say it is completely sure. It can be absolutely trusted for every aspect of our lives. And you know what else it says that we should do? It says pay attention to it. Pay attention to it. Read it. Study it. Meditate on it. Allow the word of God to totally transform your life. Why should you do that? Because the Bible says this, that God is the source of scripture and that God protected scripture. God is the source of scripture and he protected scripture. The Holy Spirit of God guided and directed what he absolutely wanted in the Bible. And that's the wonder and the beauty that we have of God's word. I don't know where you are at this morning with your life and what God is doing 
the difficulties and challenges you may be going through right now. I, I have no idea what holds for all of us in 2024, but I know that God's word is absolutely reliable to whatever circumstance you may be going through in life. And if God's word is absolutely reliable, that means this, then we can trust him. Not just the Bible, but to trust him for who he is and what he would do. And so let's simply do what the text says. Let's pay attention to it. Let's read it. Let's study it. Let's meditate on it. Let's obey it when it doesn't feel good. When the word of God confronts you in a life choice, a life situation, are we going to run from it? Are we going to want our, our lives to be around teaching that tickles our ears and makes us feel good? Or are we going to read and study God's word and go, oh, man, the spirit of God in line with the word of God has convicted me of an area of my life, and I need to change. That's what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says. It directs us and confronts us and rebukes us, gets us back on track. Lord, I thank you for your word. Father, there is just so many things that I left out and so many things that we could say about your word. Father, it's just an anchor to our soul. Father, over and over in the Bible, we're reminded of who you are and what you've done for us. And ultimately, Lord, the, the Bible reminds us of a person of Jesus and what he has done for us in coming to this earth and living and offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Father, we want to open our eyes to the beauty of Jesus, to the reality of who he is and how he can change us. Father, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, Lord. Father, I pray that you would just help us to see Jesus through scripture, that we'd be encouraged that, that every day, Lord, we would look to your word to be transformed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather this morning and to sing and celebrate. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray.